This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Susan Patterson, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm very thrilled to be here. Yes, you're a newbie, first time with us. Mm-hmm. You're a newbie to writing fiction as well. First time well, to that. Been working on it for a long time, but newbie to being published for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Susan is a writer and editor. She's from New Zealand. Her poetry and short stories have appeared in various publications, including Mianjin, Going Down Swinging, Etchings, Wedding, and Poetry New Zealand. Her debut novel, which is what we're talking about today, Where Light Meets Water, is an evocative novel of love and art and one man's journey to find his place in the world. It was also shortlisted in an early version for the 2019 Michael, is it Gifkin's Prize for an unpublished novel and written with the assistance of a Varuna Fellowship. So you live in Australia, you live in Melbourne? I live in Melbourne, yes. Been here for quite a long time now. I love, oh you have? Okay. Do you you identify as Australian or do you identify as a New Zealander? I think if somebody asks me, I would say I'm a Kiwi. I mean, I've spent sort of half my life in each country. I I do feel like I'm a Kiwi at heart, but it's almost like being split between two worlds. My mum calls me a quasi, a Kiwi Mm. Aussie. I don't know if she made that up or not, Mm. but it Mm. sort of fits because I'm neither one nor the other at the moment. You know, all of my childhood was spent in New Zealand. My family are there except for my brother who's in Japan. And so that's my childhood home and it's really in my blood. Um, and Mm. Melbourne is my adult home. It's where Mm. all all my Melbourne family and friends Mm. are and where I've made my my life and my career. So I have a deep connection to both those places. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. I often ask people, you know, in your dreams, are you, you know, what are you? Because I feel as though our dream state is probably the most authentic. And in your dreams, do you, I think it's a bit harder, Um, being from New Zealand because we're not talking about language here but do you feel that that's that that's New Zealand in my dreams in my in dreams of my future do you mean or no just when you're sleeping oh (laughs) 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 I don't know actually I, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you I mean all I can say is that New Zealand is something that I really do feel in my blood and my bones and There's a lot of inspiration that goes into the book, for instance, with the coastline along Dunedin at St. Clair Beach, which is, I go home frequently. I still call it home, you see, because my mum lives there. That feels like my home. And I go back at least once a year and I will go out walking up the hills and then along the beach and 
you know, I always come back with multiple photographs, you know, all these snaps of the different colours of the light over the sea and the, and what the beach is looking like on a particular day. And it's just ridiculous the number of pictures I have. But I'm always trying to absorb it and capture it and sort of understand its, its beauty and I guess that deep uh, love for the landscape for New Zealand is in me and I really wanted to have that come through in mm. my novel as well. I've interviewed many years ago a, an Australian writer living in LA, Cassandra Austin, wonderful oh, yes. writer. Yes. Mm. And so for whatever reason we hit it off and so every year that I'm back there I always pop in and see her. And she's from Melbourne um, and she's Australian. She's married an American and she has two children who are now teenagers, so they're very, Amer- you know, they're American. Yeah. Yeah. But she told me that her total subconscious is still Australian. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting yeah. way to look at it, yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it leaves you. Hmm. No, I don't think it does either. Um, what made you come to Australia? Oh, it was one of those decisions that you make in your early 20s, which are a lot easier to do. Mm. I mean, I've I've moved countries twice in my life. Um, Tell me about that. <laughs> and each time, very different decisions. So in my early 20s, I packed up everything I had. I'd finished studying, essentially. I studied English literature in New Zealand, and I'd already moved to complete my final year. I'd moved to Wellington. Mm-hmm. from where I grew up in Dunedin. And I knew I wanted an, something fresh for after that. And I, I'm i not quite sure. I had been on a holiday to Melbourne for about 10 days with my mum a year or two previous. And I just had this instinct. Um, I'm not really a risk taker, but I do follow my instinct. And so I just knew that this was the right move for me. And yeah, the same. And I spent a couple of years in Berlin, but that was in my late 30s. And the admin of trying to uproot your life <laughs> in your late 30s compared to your early 20s is very different. Mm-hmm. Why um, Berlin? I studied German at school. Oh. I learned German all through high school and I did some at university. And I always loved the language and wanted to be fluent, um, which I am not and very <laughs> rusty now. But uh, and because I've always, uh, well, for the last 10 years I've worked freelance, uh, I had the freedom to do so. So I chose to um, just take advantage of an opportunity mm. and mm. spent a couple of years away, but then I've returned to Melbourne. Um, mm. And that's when so, I started writing my book seriously on my return. Okay, so what, what what's your day job? <laughs> what was your day job? Oh, I have a day job. Outside of writing. Oh, you I have, have a day. day job, yes. You do. Yeah. Um, so I'm trained as a book editor. Um, oh, right. so I work as a copywriter and editor. And so I sort of learned those skills. Once I moved to Melbourne, I studied at RMIT in the professional writing and editing course. So that was fantastic because it was kind of dual pronged. So yes, it gave me a training in editing, which then gave me a vocation, a day job, um, which I really enjoyed. And then I also got to study writing novel and writing poetry at the time and um, met a great community of other writers and sort of that really set me on the path to uh, writing fiction. Okay. So I know many, many editors and publishers, as we call them here. Mm -hmm. I've grown up in the industry, so I know many, many. And I would say, now this isn't based on 
real data, this is based on gut instinct data, <laughs> my own, that maybe 80% of them have have no desire to write a book. So, yeah. yeah. rings true to me. Do you think? Yeah. Hmm. Now, so were you drawn to that occupation because you wanted to be a writer or were you in that occupation and then that kind of nurtured your desire to be a writer? No, I always wanted to be a writer and I think right from a young age I sort of thought of myself as a writer. As Did something, you? Like, yeah, and I don't mean that in a, an arrogant way. I just no. mean that was, my, that was my sense of my place in the world and what I would grow into given time and it has taken a long time. I feel like this has been a 20-year journey and in terms of the editing I, I do have that editorial part to my brain. I'm quite a details-oriented person. And I think also, you know, I had studied language from a young age and I was taught in a very structured grammatical way. So it was quite easy and I had a really a really natural bent towards editing um, and I really enjoyed it. So that was something that I could do for work and as a way to support my writing so writing is sort of where my genuine and, and deepest aspirations lie. That's how I would like to ultimately be, you know, living my life and, and earning my daily bread. I wanna I wanna just interrupt there and just go back to saying that you wanted to be a writer or an author or what I'm not sure quite sure what you said, what the, the words, exact words that you use. But you know, I think that's wonderful because I think writers don't give themselves that permission to to say yes to think Mm. of themselves as an author or writer even because you apologize for it by saying it you know yeah something that I mean it's an extremely difficult thing to achieve Mm -hmm. it's riddled with self-doubt mostly it's a very long process Mm -hmm. of learning you know finding your voice learning the skills and the technical aspects, you know, if you're writing long-form fiction, it's a lot of moving parts that go into a book and it's a very uh, difficult industry to break into. There are so many incredible talents out there. It's not something that you feel that you can say, yes, this is what I'm going to do. Um, This is my place in the world. But I think that... uh, you know, a lot of us have that feeling inside that mm-hmm. this is how we express ourselves in the world. And if we're given the opportunity, this is how we would like to do that. But it's, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of um, a lot of work and a lot of perseverance. There's a lot of, um, there's a chance involved. There's persistence involved. Um, there are many things that go into actually being able to sit at your desk day in, day out for years and write a book, let alone have the good fortune to get it into somebody's hands who can see your vision and can support that and is Mm. prepared to do so. Mm. Um, So when you find that opportunity, it's like a little gold nugget, really. I often say it has to be one of the hardest um, occupations Mm. because you do that, all that that you're saying, and then you put it out in the world. Mm. And then everyone has an opinion about it. Yeah, that's the and next that's step. Tough. 
it's also a challenge. It's incredibly exposing. I have it to say, is. it's wonderful, it but also um, mm. it's quite an yeah, issue. Yeah. Well. I often, when I look at reviews, I think, oh, I don't, I, I don't know why people do this to themselves. It's so hard. I have um, heard of authors who deliberately do not read mm, reviews. Mm, I believe Michelle Kinsella is one of these authors, mm. and part of me, I'm not actively seeking them out, mm. to be honest, because it's part of me that really wants to nurture my little naive creative space Mm -hmm. um, because it is precious. But, Mm -hmm. of course, yeah, I mean, you know, feedback is part of the process as well. Well, Charlotte would tell me, I'm sure you'd be aware of, she told me when I had a chat with her on this podcast that once that book goes out into the world, it doesn't belong to her anymore. It belongs to the reader. Mm. I quite like that. I think that's true, I think, and that speaks to, I think, a little bit about the art in my in my book, in Where Light Meets Water, for instance, that, you know, art is sort of that transference point between mm. artist and viewer. And I think book is the same, you know, after you sort of set it sail, so to speak, it's no longer yours. Other people will see themselves reflected in it or will have opinion about it or, yeah, it, it, it becomes a product of somebody else's engagement at that point. Mm. Do you think um, being an editor has helped you with your craft? I think yes. I mean, I would say yes. I I don't think that's a blanket statement for all writers because everyone writes very differently, but I think it certainly affects the way that I write. So I am somebody who will sit down each session and go over what I've written the previous day and I will essentially edit that. As you as, go. As I, I edit as I go. So it takes me a very long time to write a first draft. So I edit as I go and then in doing that, having looked over the previous session's work, that gets me into the flow to then continue on with writing more. So, yes, I do go over. I really like to continually refine um, as I go, I'm not somebody who could just get it down very roughly on the page and then go mm. back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tell me about your Varuna Fellowship and the assistance that you've had to help you make this a book. Mm, So the Varuna Fellowship was just a really extraordinary Mm. experience. I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. So that was back in 2017. 
And at that time I was still working. I was on about the third year of my first draft. The first draft took so long and it was just, I remember still getting the the email and Mm. just the excitement and the thrill. And part of it was, I think after having, you know, written for so many years and feeling like I wasn't really getting anywhere and maybe this was just a dream that was never going to be a reality, um, I felt like I had some validation. And so Varuna um, is this wonderful writer's house, as you know, in Katoomba in the Blue Mountains, and I had two weeks of uninterrupted writing time there they they are so wonderful they cook all your meals and you can go for beautiful walks through the national park and I got so much done and I think I really there for the first time understood the um, capacity of of my own focus and what you could achieve once you get that creative flow I don't think I'd experienced that before because I'd been working full-time and writing around the edges and after that, I came back and I dropped down from full-time work to four days. I was lucky enough then to get another fellowship uh, with Glenfern, which is now sadly is no longer. It was an historic house in East St Kilda. That gave me three months of studio access for two days a week. Wonderful. And I, it was amazing. And I got a room that was apparently called the finishing room. <laughs> and I did finish my first draft there. And from there, it really, you know, those two uh, fellowships, this just gave me so much um, validity, I think, is is the word. Mm. It it makes you feel that, yes, you are. (laughs) People are taking your work seriously. It gives you more license, I think, to take it seriously yourself and to really, because you're giving up a lot with no Mm. guarantee of an outcome and Mm. you do it purely because you are driven deeply Mm. to continue to do it. And I loved, uh, you know, I was really enjoying the process and so um, I just kept drafting from there. And Mm. Did you get feedback? Was it also that you were were in an environment where of like-minded people, I guess, because you would have met other writers? That community is very important for any Mm. writer, yeah, finding your people. Mm. Did you have a mentor type of person? I had a mentor, not at that stage. I had mm-hmm. had a mentor 10 years prior mm-hmm. um, that I, I got the opportunity to work with one of my most admired authors, in fact, Gail Jones. Um, oh, through, wow. Yeah, through um, it was an Australian Society of Authors opportunity for a mentorship, and she actually read a manuscript prior to where light meets water. It was a a manuscript that I worked on for a number of years that I started when I was studying RMIT and she gave me wonderful feedback about that and I also remember discussing with her the seed of where light meets water. So it was great to have that opportunity and then for all sorts of reasons I didn't get that first manuscript published. It was very closely and kindly (laughs) considered by some publishers and edit um, agents, but I put that in the drawer and I had the idea for Where Light Meets Water, which is inspired by my great-great-great-grandfather and his artwork and his maritime life. And when I had Where Light Meets Water come into the arcs, so the advanced copies just prior to proofing, I emailed Gail and um, told her that I had 
you know, continued to persist over all these years and this was the outcome and she was generous enough to read my novel and to provide a wonderful quote um, of endorsement for it. So just knowing that you've got people who believe in you and who, and I mean, you know, we hadn't spoken for a long time, but at the time she really gave me a sense that, you know, I did have something in me. And I, I think those moments keep you going. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think otherwise it's you'd feel as though it was all in your head. Like you what do, I do so it? many yeah. do. I mean, even even when you have a publisher, <laughs> even when you have a publisher and you're going through edits and you're suddenly like, I can't even write a sentence. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't <laughs> Who am I? Where am yeah, I? Um, moments of doubt all the time. It's tell me the process. Tell me your path to publishing. So yeah, so I've touched on it in a roundabout way. Um, with various things. So studying at RMIT, studying novel and poetry and editing, then writing a manuscript. Um, No, I mean getting it published. Oh, yes. So after that, so um, around 2019, I think it was, I had a completed draft. Oh, sorry, 2018, I must have finished it. And I sent it out uh, to the Michael Gifkins Award for Unpublished novel mm-hmm. and that was um shortlisted at the start of 2019 a shortlist of three which I was really thrilled about and I guess that gave me an entry point to approach an agent I'd had my agent Melanie Austell um recommended to me by a couple of people and so I sent it off to her and you know said that I'd just been shortlisted and so she was kind enough to have a read she gave me a lot of feedback <laughs> And that's where the hard work began. So Mm. I was signed up to Melanie and she has worked as a publisher and editor herself. So she's fantastic for helping, Mm. you know, really push your debut to the next level. So I ended up restructuring and really writing into the story. So from there, it was a process of mining ever deeper with each draft that I did. And after another, I worked all through Melbourne's lockdown on my own, <laughs> in my own little bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of that, she submitted it to um, some publishers. I had a really enthusiastic response from Fiona Henderson at Simon & Schuster, and I decided to go with them, and they've been absolutely incredible. And then, again, yeah, editing process, they they say that the hardest work comes after you've been signed. And I thought yeah. I'd done some pretty hard work, honestly. Well, and you got to that point, and then it's true, uh, there's even more to come. <laughs> well, and also you had the experience. You know what it's like at both ends. That's right. Yeah, I did. And that was really helpful, actually, being mm. during the editing process as an author. You know, when you're editing, you can see something's not quite working and you, you offer a, a suggestion or a possible solution you don't necessarily know if that's the right answer. You're just trying to push the author uh, towards seeing the the problem themselves and finding a way that suits them best to solve it. So from an author's perspective, I could see what these queries on my work were trying to do. You know, they've identified that something's not quite right. I'm not sure that they've identified exactly the heart of it, um, but that would be enough to prompt me to sort of work my way through those things. So I think that was very valuable Mm. for me to have experience on both sides Mm. at that point to understand what the editor might be 
going through themselves as they work through a manuscript. Mm-hmm. So it's a beautiful um, story. It's heartfelt. It's, you know, it's romance. It's all sorts of things. It's historical fiction in a way. And do you think that that's going to be your genre? You know, I never thought of myself as an historical fiction writer Mm. until it started getting that label in the publishing process. Mm. Um, Obviously it is historical. It's set in the 19th century, but I wanted it to have a modern style. So Mm. the Authors I really admire, for instance, I've mentioned Gail Jones. I love her work, 60 Lights, which is set in 1860s. But her style is so fresh and modern. Um, Michael and Duchess, English Patient, another one, you know, just beautiful lyrical writers, writers of character and ideas that are sort of universal regardless of the time that they're set in, but also a great awareness of that setting and environment as well. So I suspect there's something in me that likes historical fiction for the distance it gives between me as a person, a modern person, and the writing. Mm-hmm. I like that space. I think there's a reflective space there mm-hmm. in the distance that it gives me. So quite and it gives you more autonomy, I think. Mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, I think perhaps that's what I'm getting at with that sense, mm-hmm. of a space that allows you to... Um, just delve into a lot of issues and you can reflect modern and that's very important to me in my writing that I deal with things that are very relevant for a modern reader but you can see um, this reflected in in the history and, and what's changed and, and what hasn't changed and what we can still learn as human beings you know mm-hmm. in our lives um, so quite likely I will stay in that space yeah you say that this the story that you've written, Where Light Meets Water, started with your great-great-grandfather. Mm. I don't know if I got the right amount of greats there. That's right, three greats. <laughs> three greats. Um, will that be, you know, when you think about ideas, when you think about storylines, do you kind of tend to reflect on your past? Is it something that you think about a lot, like your family history? Not especially well. I guess not especially. I mean, family is a Mm. big theme in the book. Family is very important to me. You know, I had been aware of my relative um, and then uh, it was when I came across his death certificate that that really sowed the seed of the Mm. story. I knew I didn't want to write family history. I need the space and the imaginative flight of fiction. Mm. So I certainly didn't want to go about trying to excavate the past or my relative's life and try to recreate him on the page. But I took his paintings, which I loved, and I gave them to my fictional character. And um, I was really inspired by the journeys. Um, So when I found this, um, was given this death certificate, it showed that he died in Yokohama, Japan in 1873. And I had no idea why he went there, but I had what I call this moment of geographical confluence, which was a sense of his journey and mine mapping somehow. Mm. So he was a Scotsman who emigrated in the 1850s to Melbourne, which is where I've made my home, obviously. And then he emigrated in the 1860s to Port Chalmers, which is the port of the city of Dunedin, where I grew up in New Zealand. And at the time, I was also about to welcome my Japanese sister-in-law, so there was just this sense of mm. deep connection and mirroring 
across the generations. And that was the seed for discovering what that story would be. Yeah, so I didn't want to write his life, but I hope that he, you know, if he knew about this, I hope that he would be pleased that his art has somehow inspired the art of of his great, great, great granddaughter. Yeah, mm. I think he'd be very happy, actually. Susan, <laughs> we're out of time. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed our conversation very much. Thank you, Cheryl. That was really wonderful to talk to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.